When I was in college, I was part of a, a team that would bring uh, big-name bands to perform on our campus uh, down in Mankato. And, and for example, I'm, this is probably going to date me a little bit, but I was on the team that was responsible for bringing this band in the late 90s called Three Doors Down. And they came with, uh, some of you are laughing because you remember Three Doors Down, right? Oh, it's a great band. I just listened to them the other day. And they came with this band called Fuel and a one-hit wonder called Oleander. Um, it was a really neat experience to look out from backstage and see the Taylor Center at Mankato be completely full and know that you had a part uh, in that. And while I was just a cog in the wheel for bringing Three Doors Down uh, to campus, there was one act that I was completely in charge of, the one that I, I, I had organized and made sure everything was together and contacted everyone. But it was a little bit more tricky to pull off because it not only involved this uh, this student association concert group that I was in, but it also was part of the music department coming together to, uh, to bring this individual together. But we did it. I was able to get Bobby McFerrin to come to Mankato. And for those of you that don't know who Bobby McFerrin is, he's like, He's the don't worry, be happy guy, right? I mean, you remember, maybe some of you remember that from the 80s. He also had the Cosby theme, and, and he is, um, I would recommend looking him up. He is a vocal wonder. The things that this guy can do with his voice, no one else can do. And so we brought him on the evening that he came. He put on a concert that, again, filled out the Taylor Center. And it's a very interactive, very family-friendly, fun show. But during the day, we were able to get him to come to the music department and put on a master class for those of us that were in the music department. And so he lectured, and he brought up volunteers and, and taught them to do certain things, especially with improvisation and uh, an answer, did a, did a, a Q&A, and um, it was something that we left as music majors knowing a lot more uh, about our voices than we did before coming in there in any other pedagogy class that we had. Uh, we were better musicians because of it. That is what a master class does. It is when someone that knows their craft so well comes in as a master of their subject and teaches you how to, how to do what they do. And in the first three chapters of the letter of Ephesians, Paul puts on not just one master class, but two master classes on the idea of prayer. In these verses, uh, the apostle uh, Paul prays for the people at Ephesus. And, uh, and if we pay attention to this master class, we will not only grow just as individual Christians, but we will bless our brothers and sisters in the church if we follow his lead. So let's step into this classroom. We've already read what Paul has said. Now our goal is to internalize it and then get into the business of praying biblically for each other. If we want to pray like Paul, if we want to see the power of God through prayer, then we need to know the three big questions of prayer, the who, the what, and the why. So let's first take the who. The who uh, is this omnipotent God, and we ought to take confidence in this omnipotent God. Uh, 
We've covered just about three chapters in this absolutely amazing uh, letter that Paul wrote to this church. And it has been very theologically dense. And that means that Paul has carefully crafted so many reasons, theological reasons, of why we should praise God. In chapter 1, he went into great detail about God's goodness to us and how he chose us and how he, how he adopted us and how he has forgiven us and redeemed us all in Christ and how he has made known to us his great plan for uh, both past, present, and future. Again, in Christ. And he also told us of, of how we are guaranteed to be his uh, by the uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us as a down payment for our salvation for that day when we're with him face to face. In chapter 2, he laid out the history of our salvation, how we were spiritually dead in our sins and in our trespasses, choosing rather than following him to follow the ways of the world, the ways of the flesh, and the ways of the devil himself. And yet, in spite of our spiritually deceased uh, condition, he made us alive in Christ Jesus, revived our spiritually dead hearts, and gave them life to love and to serve this great God and Savior. And so here, this new community he calls in chapter 2, and it's, it's where uh, the Spirit of God now resides most fully in the church. This new community isn't just a subset of the culture. It's a completely new humanity. It is a new community, one in which being Jewish is no longer a qualifying factor in order to be part of it. It's also a community where being a Gentile is no longer a disqualifying factor for not being in it. But rather, here in this new community that has been created in Christ, it's Jew and Gentile and black and white and male and female and American and Russian and, and Peruvian and, and Chinese and everyone who bears the name of Christ is all in this community to together and here we see that that uh, God is building his new temple in and only in the church and notice that he's so busy praising and extolling the the greatness of God up to our uh, passage today that he's only given us one command that's it in all three of these chapters and that is to remember who we were and who we are now in Christ and who we will be. And now in chapter uh, 3, verse uh, 14, he lumps all of these things together. And he says, for this reason, I, my, I bow my knees before the Father. Well, for what reason? Well, again, it's for, for all these things that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And he is so floored by God's mercy and kindness that he kneels to pray. Now, for us, that wouldn't be so weird. Well, maybe, well, maybe for Baptists, it would be weird. But uh, I grew up Catholic. We're going to church was sort of like a workout, right? You stand up, sit down, kneel, stand up, sit down, kneel. So kneeling to us really wasn't anything that, that, that strange. But to a Jew in Paul's day, kneeling was very strange. 
The Jews in Paul's day, and even today, do not kneel when they pray. They kneel standing, they pray standing up. So if you ever see pictures or videos of, of the Hasidic Jews over at the Wailing Wall, they're not kneeling. They are at the wall praying, and they're kind of swaying back and forth uh, in such a way. If you were to pray to that, for them to kneel was to look helpless, dependent, and needy. But when we look at the character of who God is and who we are and his grace and his mercy to us, how can we look anything but dependent and helpless and needy? This is a God who literally created everything into existence by speaking a word. I can't even get my dog to do some things with the words I use, but yet God, he speaks it into being, and it is. He is self-sufficient. He's infinite in power. But yet, even though he is, he is self-sufficient, there's nothing he needs. He's all-powerful, omnipotent, if you want to use that word, yet he is interested in us. He cares for us. He chose us to be his before he created anything. He desired to adopt us as children before any molecule was even part of the equation. When we have such a God as this as our Father, he is not only interested in us, but he is interested and cares for every single aspect in our lives. The difficult, the mundane, the, the joyful, um, the, the, the sad, and the, the difficult when we're tempted to have anxiety about things, God is kind and, and loving and uh, patient and provides. This is a father who, who says that um, he feeds the, bird of the, the birds of the air. So why are we worried about him not taking care of us? If he takes care of something as insignificant as a blue jay flying around out there, how much more does he care about us? This is a God who is near to us, who loves us, and it is this God to whom Paul bends the knee. It is this God, then, that we owe our allegiance and our affection to. Further notice, he goes on in verse 15, where he says, "...from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named." Now, this verse can be a little tricky for us uh, 21st century Americans to, to get our minds around. In an ancient context, to name something was to show dominion and authority over it. So if you look in, in, in the creation account, God makes the, the, the sky and the earth, and then what does it say? He called the day, day, and he called the night, night. It's this thing called a merism, which is everything that all encompasses in it. God has authority over it. And if you remember when he created Adam, what did he say to Adam? Name every single beast of the land. And he does. It shows his authority over that. He even gives Adam the authority to name Eve. If you remember in the story of Jacob wrestling with God, what does Jacob do while he's wrestling with him? He says, tell me your name. And God doesn't do it because he knows that he has ultimate authority over Jacob. And so here we have the, well, think about Jesus uh, for, uh, for another example. When he goes to the, uh, uh, the Gerasene area and he sees the demoniac and he says, uh, uh, what is your name? He says, well, we're a legion because we're many. It's this 
demonic presence recognizing their inferior, inferiority to Jesus, who is superior. Now, it's with that background in mind that Paul says that God is from, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That's an authority statement. On earth, he has authority and dominion over every single person that has ever existed. Whether they acknowledge it or not, God is the one whom they owe their very lives to. He, is, he determines the span of their lives, giving them both breath and, light, uh, breath and death. In addition to this, perhaps more important in the Ephesian context, is that all the celestial beings that are in the, the, the realm that we don't see, the spiritual world, are all named from God too. And this is important for the Ephesians because they were really in touch with this spiritual realm all around them. They had come out of a background in which magic was worshipped along with actual spirits, and, and chief among them was this goddess Artemis. Um, the Greek name of Artemis is Diana that you might have uh, been familiar with. And, and uh, this Artemis had the the grip on the hearts of the Ephesian people. And notice what Paul essentially says here. He says, in essence, look, when I think of God, the one true and living God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done, man, I bow to him. He has power. He has dominion. And he has authority of all things in this realm and in the physical realm. That was an enormous amount of confidence that he gave to the Ephesian people. There's no force in heaven on earth that can break the line of communication that Paul's got going on with God, and there's no force on earth that can break the communication between us and God when we pray to him. And if we see this rightly, we can take confidence knowing that if we go to him in prayer, there is nothing anywhere on earth or in the spiritual realm that can cut that off, that can cut off his power or can change his great love for us in Christ Jesus. So we ought to take confidence in prayer. This is a God who is sovereign over all. He hears and he cares. So have confidence in this omnipotent God. But second, we look at the what. We need to be bold in our requests for each other. We should be bold God has formed this new humanity called the church. It's one in which those who are in Christ are, are all welcomed and uh, cared for. And one of the ways that we welcome each other and one of the ways that we care for each other is, is to pray for each other, to go to God on their behalf. This is the second time that Paul now has described how he prays for these uh, Ephesian believers. And one thing that should strike us, and I said this uh, the last time of his prayer, was how differently Paul prays than we do. In my experience, anyway, the vast majority of prayer requests that come my way are related to health or financial struggles. And there may be some relational ones that, that pop up, but for the most part, they're concerned, they're concerned with health and wealth. Now, I'm not contesting that we shouldn't pray for those. There are some serious health issues that many of us have that we need divine intervention to come into our lives in order to see his power. But uh, again, the infinite God is interested in all of us and in our health and in our financial struggles and all of that sort of stuff. But 
Is that the most important thing? You can be physically healthy and spiritually sick. And if that's the case, what good does your physical health do for you? You can be totally wealthy in this world, but if you are poor in in spirit and in faith, what what is that going to get you? What profit is that? Now contrast that with what Paul prays here. There's, uh, there's one overarching prayer that he has that's sort of like a wet sponge that when he prays it, it, it gets squeezed and, and more prayers just sort of drip out from that sponge. And the overarching prayer is found in verse 16 when he says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So in, instead of being, uh, instead of us being wealthy in, in, uh, in uh, the spiritual stuff here, he says that he appeals to God's immense wealth of his glory to give his members of his church strength and power. And when we think of strength and power in a church setting, you know what my mind defaults to? That garbage on TBN or that stuff you might see on YouTube where people are slaying others in the spirit, where they're, you know, pushing their hand like that and people are falling all over the place and shaking and convulsing and, and people are may or may not be healed or whatever is going on out there. You know, those things are cloaked in Christian words, but what you see on a lot of those programs is not Christianity. To be strengthened with power means to have the power of the gospel so entrenched in your soul and in your spirits that everything in life is seen through a gospel lens. It takes power and strength because the world, the flesh, and the devil are so convincing and so enticing and we are so weak. We need the power of God in our spirits. And notice the agent of this strength here is in God's spirit He's already stated in chapter 1 how the Spirit of God indwells us at the time of conversion as a down payment for final salvation. But here he's saying that the Spirit has a second role here, that he accomplishes our sanctification, our becoming more like Christ. The deliverance of the gospel permeating everything in our hearts. So the joys and the struggles and the worries and the fears and, the, and all those things in our lives are seen through the gospel. He prays this with the purpose that, in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now notice he's not talking about here when we become Christians how uh, Christ comes to, to live in our heart, but rather he's pointing to a deeper experience that we can have with Jesus and our relationship with him. There's an old book that's called uh, My Heart, Christ's Home by a guy named Robert Munger. Uh, it's, it's a little book, and if you ever want to check it out, I would, I would recommend it, where he illustrates uh, Jesus coming into our lives in terms of a house. And when we first become Christians, he might sleep on the couch in the living room, and he might tidy up the living room. But uh, as, as time goes on, he moves to the kitchen, and he tidies up there, and, and he moves into a bedroom, and tidies up there, and in the closets, and And then sometimes he makes his way down to the cellar where there's all sorts of dirty and yucky stuff and he starts cleaning in those areas too. 
And the goal then is for Christ to go into every single room in the house and have his presence and his dwelling place there everywhere in our lives. And here his, his point uh, is that our hearts are his home, that uh, quite often he doesn't always have dominion over everything in our lives, practically speaking. There are some doors that we have shut to him. Sure, we might have received him, but there might be some areas in our lives in which, you know, the closet door is locked. You know, we don't want him to see the crawl space because we've tucked a lot of our baggage down in there. But yet as time goes on, we allow him more and more access to those parts of our house that aren't clean or even sanitary. And he puts those into, uh, he, he starts changing our lives in that way. And this is all part of his great love for us. If he were to go on and clean the whole house in one fell swoop, we would probably all just sort of collapse and be done in for. But as it is, he moves from one point, one part of our lives to another. It is this love that Paul says here that ought to be uh, rooted and grounded. Rooted like a tree. When we lived in Louisville, Kentucky, it seemed like every single storm that came by, we would drive down the street and there would be another tree that was knocked down and uprooted. And when you look at the roots, it makes sense. Their roots were not very deep. They were a little wide, but they weren't deep. And so when the ground got super saturated, one little wind would come by and just totally knock those things over. And so here, he is saying that we need to be rooted, not out, but we need to be rooted deep. So when any kind of storm or any kind of wind comes by that might threaten what we are in Christ Jesus, that we stand strong, that not even a leaf would fall off. Further still, he wants us to be grounded it's an architectural uh, term. To be grounded is to have spiritual footings, as if it's a, a skyscraper. Think about that, those, those footings that are in the bottom of that, that, that keep the, the, the building straight and up if there's any winds that come from there. We are to be grounded and rooted in love. So he prays that we would be those things, verse 19, so that... We may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now notice the multidimensional um, factors here that are going on. John Stott wrote this, and I absolutely love this in his commentary. He said that Christ's love is broad enough to encompass all of mankind if they were to come to him. His uh, uh, love is long enough to last for eternity, it is deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner and high enough to exalt that sinner to heaven. Now notice in verse 19, it, he adds to it by saying that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. How can we even come close to comprehending a fraction of this this is something that you and I will never fully get our minds around. But yet Paul is asking God to do that. He's asking for the impossible. But every day as we grow in him, we get a little more of a, little more of a taste and a little more of a nibble. And soon, as verse 19 says, we are to be filled with him. It's an allusion to the Old Testament temple and the tabernacle. Now think about the end of Exodus. 
when the Israelites had done all of the work that they were supposed to do to build this elaborate tabernacle. And they put him, they put the tabernacle in the tent, and then uh, it says in uh, chapter 40, verse 34 of Exodus, that the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Can you imagine how wild that would be? But that's the goal for us. No longer does or will God dwell in a tabernacle or the Jewish temple. He now resides in us and in the church as we grow day by day in Christ. Now that's quite a prayer. It's not wrong to pray for health and those things that are worldly things that are troubling us. God cares about those, but he is deeply interested in our hearts our health and bank accounts will one day fade but we will be with god forever so why not start praying like this why not start praying for your brothers and sisters in christ that christ's love would permeate their lives so much so that we would be spiritually healthy in a sick world what would our lives our families or our our church look like if we started praying and going to God like this. You know, it can be tempting to neglect praying like this for a couple of reasons. Perhaps we don't really want God to come through in this way. Perhaps there are spaces in our house that we don't want Jesus in because it's too hard to have to deal with that. It's too hard to face what we've done. It's too hard to face what has been done to us. Or maybe we have a lack of faith that God would honor such prayer. And Paul is so confident in his prayers that he cannot help but burst into what we call a doxology, which is a, a short little statement of praise in verses 20 and 21. And in it, he gives us more than enough reason to go to God in prayer. And that's our third uh, point here. It's the why we pray. We should take joy in the power of God. We should lean on the power of God and take joy in that. Just as we're completely unable to comprehend the multidimensional aspect of God's love for us in Christ Jesus, so God's power to answer our prayers is beyond what we could even imagine. Look at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Now, I love that statement, not because uh, for what it plainly says, but, but how it understands the human heart. You and I may utter a prayer request to a friend or a or family member or perhaps to God, but we, we all know that there are some recesses of our hearts that we wouldn't dare to utter, that are in our mind, but we wouldn't say it. There are some prayer requests that are so personal, so deep, that we're afraid to utter them. And so Paul says that uh, he praises God for uh, his, his ability to do all that we utter audibly, and even those things that we are afraid to even just mutter. 
He is able to do those things far more abundantly than all we could ask or think. And notice that how Paul doesn't say that God is just able to do it. He says he is able to do far more abundantly. That's a mouthful right there. Um, (laughs) This is what we would call a super superlative. He is just going to town on how God's ability is to do this. Um, so that uh, we can experience more of Christ, more of his dominion in our lives, more intimate, uh, intimacy with him, more growth in him. He is super abundantly able to do this. And in verse 21, he gives them the means to this power. He says, according to the power at work within us. We ought not to look at this in individual terms. He is talking in collective terms now as the church. There is something unique about this new community, this new humanity uh, called the church in that when we come together, like we are right now, this may seem mundane to you, but God is doing something as we gather Together, he is using us in the lives of each other to experience his love that goes past all knowledge. God is using the church for us to comprehend with all the saints, that's the key word there, the multidimensional nature of his love for us. That's why you, if you're a Christian, need to have a church home. That's why you as a Christian not just have a church home, but be in membership. And not just in membership, you need to be here. To simply watch at home, you aren't able to get the the, the full effect of what the church is meant to be and to do. Isolated Christians are incomplete and limited Christians. And if we want to see God show his super abundant power, we need to be together. This is exactly what Paul says in verse 21. To him be the glory. Where? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This new humanity, which is rooted and established in Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension, all part of his love for us, is God's plan for his glory to be known. This is the foundation of our church that we've been looking at for six weeks now. And it will be what everything that comes from from here on out is, is built upon. And it's all done together. We are a church. We are God's family. We are to praise him and worship together. We are to engage him in prayer together. We are to encourage each other together. We are to reach a lost world together. So let's go from this place with a more robust passion and commitment to God's plan for us in the church. Friends, we have a great God. Let's be the church and let's go to him in prayer.